Right, today I'm in Grimsby with Craig Edwards. Uh, Craig is an ex-professional snooker player and a snooker and golf tipster and punter. Correct, Craig? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Um, now, let's talk about your, your um, snooker career to begin with. I mean, you were a professional at 19. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was midway through my A-levels when they started the qualifying process at 17. and I was already playing the pro-ams, earning good money. Um, and it's a two-year process to qualify back then. You had to get they had to get in the top eight to get in the world's 128, and it was ultra competitive. I probably qualified before I was ready in a way. Um, we had to go to Pontins, Prostatin, where they had on the buses uh, twice and two other tournaments, and I made the final of one, the first one, and uh, was consistent all round. So. Yeah, I got my status by 1988, I think it was. I started in the summer of 1988 uh, as a professional. Um, yeah, and that, that, was, that was the beginning of it. Um, and um, I think the sec after the second season, I got into the world's top 64. Um, then I had three seasons in the world's top 64. So you guaranteed a reasonable income back then. Um, but there was only six or eight tournaments. It was very pressurised. Um, uh, very difficult, you know, if you lost your confidence, your whole season could be gone. Um, and, uh, you know, nowadays the lads have got 20, 20 tournaments a year and it's been a lot better for them. You know, they've probably been able to relax a little bit more. Um, and uh, back then it was like uh, every match felt like a final sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was difficult. And your, your interest in betting... That, there was a lot of betting going on around you at, at that time. Yeah, there was a, uh, quite a lot of betting goes on. Um, and up the snooker club, I'd be across in the in the bookmakers um, quite early doors sometimes, you know, by the afternoon before the racing. I'd have played for three or four hours, gone across. So I knew how to place a bet even before I was 18. You know, you'd be across there back in them days. No one really policed it. Um and everyone would be betting up snooker club. You'd be playing for money, you'd be playing points. Um, so it'd be, you might start at a penny point or 20p a point. The guy that follows you, you'd pay him. Uh, so if someone made 100 break, you were, you know, um, it could get quite expensive. Um, so I was always around betting, but I wasn't very good at it. I was just gambling back then. And, um, you know, I did play a few money matches where, uh, you'd have backers and they would put up a, a sum of money and you'd play for your fee would either be 10 or 20 percent um, of the winnings um, and the backers had the risk. Um, there was quite a culture of it back then. Yeah. Um, you know, and kind of, I can see, you know, how the sport nowadays is um, with this current thing with the betting scandal. And of course, they have a zero tolerance on the world professional tour nowadays no one you're not allowed to bet on any snooker match not even anyone else's you're not allowed to place a bet in your own name in a snooker account if you do you'll be banned and uh that's where it's got to but back then people were hedging their own matches um hedging their own high breaks and uh, i doubt it wasn't fixing there was no real fixing i think this francisco's did but um yeah, it was, uh, betting was around all the time. And you were getting some good marks on the horses. Yeah, well, I played at Ray Edmonds Snook Centre, 
Ray was, well, a shrewd punter, probably learned a lot of good habits from him from that time, used now. And um, he had a guy who had the inside track at Shannon's, Kumani's, Stout's, Nicky Anderson's. Um, and this guy would fence off some of the money. We'd have to back the horses a bit, certain ones. Uh, because I think the, the head lads were getting a free £500 bet at the time on, uh, you know, and that's the early 90s. Um, and so we've got, I mean, we had some great ones. Shannon had a period where he was winning all the juvenile races with Queen's Logic, Josra Algahood, Bintalea, just to name three. And we were on them from being a juvenile. And, uh, you know, that... At that time, there was two or three in front of him in the main races uh, because of the reputations of the trainers at that point. I think Shannon was just making his reputation in them, uh, them races. So um, we had some nice runs there. Um, Kumani, we got high rise in the first time. I went to a handicap at Pontefract. My mate rung me. I was sat watching the cricket at Derby and he says, says Kumani's got one. Pontefract is going to win. He says... That's all I've heard. Bloke says it won't get beat. It can't, won't hear of it getting beat. It's just got to stand up. So I think it won at five to two. Had a good bet on it, but if I'd known it was going to win the Derby two races later, I would have had a lot more on it. And um, I mean, its next race was the Lingfield Derby trial. And he says, well, we fancy it to run really well. But of course, they were never going to, you couldn't tip it in that sort of race. Um, and yeah, it was nice. Got some really good information yeah we had some we had some losers as well like you do um but i realized you got to know that you you had a, an edge and um ray himself had horses with mckees to be um mckees to be ray was really friendly with robin o'ryan who was tom o'ryan who wrote for the racing post he was his brother and i think he's worked for Fahi raymond Fahi in recent years he was a clever guy um of course, McEasterby, you had all the old sprinters. He would be, you know, foist and blessing in disguise. Every time they got down to the mat, they would probably always run up a little sequence. Um, real clever trainer. Um, I mean, the, the, best, the best story of making a few, Bob, well, I probably missed out. Um, a horse for Michael Stout won on the final day of the Oak, uh, Oaks Day at Epsom, top Durham, and a couple of years later, Never run again. A couple of years later, it turned up at McEasterby's yard. I said to my mate, what's that doing there? He says, well, it must have gone wrong. And McEasterby started it on a Sunday in a cellar. And it went in a claimer. And then never run, it run last. And then it was on a Monday night at a um, very low-level handicap, I think it was, at, at Thirsk. And uh, last race... And I'd gone to work at the shop at that time. I'd packed in snooker, gone to work at the shop. And I'd left some bets on Betfair. They got matched at silly numbers, 40, 30, 20. Remember, that's the afternoon. Mate rung me about 10 to 9. I was just shutting up the shop. He says to me, this one of Easterbys ain't going to get beaten in the last race. Just, they've just let us know. It's last minute. It was 9 to 4 by then. Top Durham. So it come in, it was, I mean, I think his open tissue with the bookies was something like 20 to one. And uh, he never moved an inch on it, a jockey. And um, 
I mean, he had trouble, I think, just keeping the distance back. And, uh, you know, they pulled McEast to be in the stewards, but ain't going to get anywhere with McEast to be. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was just a serious... And the next race, to show how good it was, it won the Carlisle Bell. So it went from two races ago running in claimers or sellers to winning that. And, you know... <laughs> And I think that was it. Never really won a decent race again. Now, now when you were when you were playing, everybody yeah. knows all the stars from the eighties. Yeah. Still remember them if you were around. So you, any any particular stories like Alex Higgins, for example? Well, <laughs> I mean, first time I'm uh, well, I first time I met Higgins was in Scotland, and I was due to play him. It was one of my about my second tournament as a pro. I'd won qualifying rounds. and was in a club. It was a lower ranking event. And I'd heard that he'd been in a fight in Glasgow. And he turned up, it was a Saturday night in the club. The club was absolutely on the rafters. It were like, it was packed. And in walked Alex, two black eyes. He's queuing a plastic black tube cue case, which is something you'd find in all snooker clubs, not a normal case. He comes in with his minders. And, uh, you know, we get to the table and he says, her baby face, and then we toss the coin. He says, um, Ed, he says, uh, I'll let you break. He says, make sure you get a shot. And uh, it's a good game. And he goes, that's what it's like to shake hands with the devil. So I ended up being 3-1 up, feeling totally overawed. 4-2 up, feeling totally overawed still, because he was just awful. He couldn't, couldn't spin a couple of balls together. But at 4-2 down, with everyone baying, everyone watching because the tents, he never missed a ball for three frames. And that was his stage. That was how he lived. Lived on the edge. He loved to take a match to its edge like that. I'd seen him do it years prior when he played Ray at the Guild Hall, funnily enough. Been 8-6 down, done similar. And that, that, was, that was a massive event, the UK Championship. And there was, there was a couple of thousand people there then. But... Um, and he just, that was, that was Alex. And um, next time I saw him was the January after, I think that was a September. First time I'd qualified for the final stages of a tournament, was, it was the European Open in Deauville. And the casino there, I, I think it had the car from Back to the Future, the DeLorean car sat outside. And um, Alex had just fallen out the window of his girlfriend's house. I think it was Siobhan Kidd, Eddie Kidd's ex-wife. Uh, he'd fallen out the first floor. So he, he was on crutches. And we'd gone across um, a coach from the WPBSA, took all the players that wanted to go, gone across on the boat, on the ferries like that. And, and Alex is on crutches and he's drunk and he's like that. And so I was in the... Um, I was in the perfume store. And I was going to get some duty free for my mum. I lived at home at the time, so I found this. And he goes, "I'll have what baby face is having." He says, "That come from the back." He says, "Are you getting that for you?" Uh, so I'm getting that for my mum. Didn't think of it. He's half taking the Mickey. That's how it's kind of how he was. The next year, a year on or something, my mum never come to watch me. She come to the Norbrook Castle, and I'm sat with her before I start. He comes up to her and he goes, Nelly, Mrs. Edwards, pleased to meet you. I met your son on the boat, and 
I remember him getting you that perfume. Well, my son, my mum, you know, to her, he was a bad boy and she wouldn't watch him on the snooker. She loved the snooker, but that gave her a complete 360 degrees of who he was. And after that, she never missed him playing. And she felt like, you know, that was charming and he was a friend. And uh, that was my mum in a nutshell. You know, it was, um, so yeah. There's a, there's a few stories. I mean, one. Um, we go to the, the Stephen Treston Davis. Yeah. Now you were four three up against him. Yeah. You ended up losing five four in 1991. I mean, how much do you think your life would have changed had you beaten him? Well, that was in the last 16 of the European Open, and I would have played Doug Mountjoy after in the last eight, and Doug was just starting to go back into a decline because he'd won the two tournaments back-to-back on his comeback the season before. Uh, yeah, I think um, I would have had you know, a realistic chance of making the semi-final, um, which would have probably changed things at the time. It would have probably been a five-figure check. Um, and, um, yeah, you just don't know. I mean, I 4-3 up, I got one chance to finish off Davis. Um, got quite a nice... Left in around the blue spot where I could make 30 or 40 quite easily. And I lost position on about, after I'd potted six or seven balls. And um, it didn't take long before I knew it. I lost position, played safe. And Davis just made 80, made 80 in the last. And um, that was that. <laughs> you had your chance and that was it was gone in an instant. Okay, Craig, so we talked about your uh, your snooker career and your sort of early forays into horse race betting and stuff, but now, we fast forward to now, you're a successful snooker and golf punter and tipster. So which is the most profitable for you? Golf. Golf is always the most profitable, um, but it's always the most um, violent variance you can have. Um, but that's basically because I do things slightly different on the golf. I tend to work a market backwards by looking at, I work backwards from the thousand to one shots, down, 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 profiling them players because it's easier to theorize a 500 to one shot should be 100 to one than it is to theorize an eight to one shot should be six to one. And if you do a lot of digging, you can, um, but that means high variance. So, you know, if you've, if you decide in, you know, to back a few 300 to one shots, 500 to one shots, they're often going to run that at their price. Um, and obviously, I, I don't back just them, but I do always include them in my perm. And um, so I kind of um, have a place model that balances that variance uh, on the golf, where I'm back in top 20 market, top 10, top 5. Um, uh, and that keeps that variance somewhat level. And um, you know, they both suffer it. Um, and then snooker in comparison. So snooker is mainly, unless you play, I do play the outright market. I play outright anti-post. I've had some really good touches um, for myself and members. Um, but mainly you've got matches, which is lower prices. Um, and that does keep variance down. And so you can more have a solid grind of making a like, little bit of profit and... Uh, keep moving forward but I think over a lifetime so I've been doing it five years 
and I think I've got well over 3,000 bets on the snooker. And they're running at 16 to 17% ROI. Now golf, my golf, I've got like um, 3,000 3, golf outright, 3,000 golf place, just for circa figures in that time. And the golf place runs at 25%. The golf outright runs at 44%. And that's settled at Bet365. So if you're betting it on an exchange price, unless it's been hammered down by the tipsters, 80% of the time on an exchange one, you're going to get minimum 20% more. Sometimes you get 100% more even. Um, so, you know, you can't get that on any other sport. You really can't get a situation where a 100 to 1 golfer has got a really realistic chance. You know, you might have tissued him somewhere 40 to 1 or less, and, you know, he's got a very realistic chance. And, you know, they're, they're quite, I wouldn't say easy to find, but, you know, if you know what you're looking for, um, course form. So when I played snooker, you'd think, you'd think, Course form don't matter in snooker. Snooker tables twelve by six. Every every time they're the same. But what I learned was that when I was travelling back to one of the places I played well at previously, and I always played well at Prestatin Pontins, that on the buses place, loads of players didn't. I liked it having a few beers every week. I probably coached with not being able to practice. There was no practice tables. And uh, I made the final there three or four times, four times, I think, with the professional one I got to. And it was huge fields. And um, I realised then, and then, of course, when I turned pro, there were certain venues you liked, Gildor, for me, but Norbrecht Castle I hated. And when you're travelling back, starts that week, you're already starting to get a little bit tense in yourself. So snooker and golf are hand-to-eye coordination games high hand-to-eye coordination games. So um, golf, I was a single-figure player as a lad because my dad was a scratch golfer. Um, and so when I was playing snooker, you had a situation where to play your best, you had to be really in a good tranquil kind of space. They say space nowadays. Um, really a bit of inner peace and you only ever really found that when you went back to somewhere where you had good positive memories so you know when people say course experience in golf is massive you know because not only do you have that but you have the fact that the course fits your game your eye your shape of shot um you know so but don't just look for the professional course experience lots of these courses have junior tournaments amateur tournaments you know, you can find your players in there if you dig enough. And so you know, you know, you, you do have more information than the bookmaker if you want to dig. And, um, you know, you can find some real, real clever angles. Um, you know, when the player, you know they're going to be perfectly suited. They may have played well in junior tournaments 15 years ago. And now they're playing as a pro. First time they've gone back there you know, or second time, you know, and people don't look at them, but... Are we, are we talking j just uh, golf and snooker, but snooker and golf? Is snooker, it... I, so I use the theory in snooker. I mean, you see it in snooker all the time. Ding Jung Wei has been absolutely awful for about five years, but he won the UK Championship at the Barbican in 18 or 19, and they made the final this year. 
and the rest of the time he hasn't made a quarter final in and so in that five years there's been another 80 tournaments that he's entered and so on them certain weeks certain players you know and you get it very much in snooker the crucible is quite a very tight venue i mean i was lucky enough to play there myself in 91 and it is unbelievably small when you've got the two tables and like now you've got neil robertson he, he's really struggling to win there despite all his marvelous form over a season and um and equally you get players that love it that that generally their level goes up from the rest of the season so um venues is huge in snooker people don't even countries you can even go to traveling to a country to a different venue will help a player take um Last year's Welch Open, Joe Perry winning. His best tournament probably on the tour has been the Welch Open where he's been consistent for years. And when I was looking last year, he was playing well in the lead up. And um, I mean, I only took him in the quarter betting at 20 to one, but he won at um, 80 or 100 to one for people. And, you know, it showed some real nice signs of form a week or two prior. And... You know, I'm a great believer that that journey, travelling back, travelling is quite exhausting for professional sportsmen. So if you're doing one you're quite relaxed in, that's half the battle. Now, now back in the 80s, we talked about it earlier, everybody knew, everyone knew Steve Davis. Yeah. Everybody knew Alex Higgins, people like Bill Werbeneck, they were all household names. These days, if you give, offered me a grand, I couldn't give you one player. Right. So am I just an exception to the rule i mean has how popular is snooker these days and does everybody price it up is it easy to get bets of any size on well i don't think uh, um snooker's as liquid as the days when i was playing um i think um back in then days adrian Humphreys was doing the racing post articles um and uh yeah back in them days they were there wasn't the television channels. They were kind of little bit of rock stars in snooker. You were in the front pages of the papers all the time. Um, snooker's still popular. Barry Earn did uh, revive it. Um, and, you know, with 20 tournaments, there's more people earning the living out of snooker now than there was in my day. Um, but there's more sports for people. So people... And it's caused a problem in snooker. You've got no young players coming for, through because, um, you know, in my day, everyone wanted to play snooker. Nowadays, kids have got more choice. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not as popular, but Bet365 are hugely into it. Their compiler's excellent this last year. I mean, I've got to say, you know, he really does a good job. Um, and people tend to follow him, the other firms. Uh, I think there was quite a funny one where he didn't do one tournament and and, and uh, I think uh, Betfair and Paddy Power tried to price it up and it was a right mess. But um, You took advantage of that, did you? Yeah, well, some people did. I, I, um, I'd lost my uh, all my accounts with them and people I used. So I couldn't, but I told members and people that could, uh, you know, I mean, you had a situation where you were getting six to four about a guy that the week after was going off at twos on when they'd set it up properly. Um, there was a couple of matches like that. So, um, Is there a danger with what appears to be a bit of a niche sport that if you, you soon show your hand, if you're any good at it, and you'll lose your accounts? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, what's the long levity of it as a, as a successful punter? Well, for me, so I had a really, you know, 
betting it's like such a journey that I had one year and probably my most profitable year in snooker punting was the lockdown um, and they were playing at Milton Keynes and the lads were playing like they were playing in practice and the century break markets they caught the bet 365 out and everyone followed them and it's like just like printing money for a few weeks um, but of course they got clever they mark people's accounts and and nowadays I'm back to pretty much using money lines um, handicaps odd century break a few high breaks because I don't want to saturate the break the smaller markets um, because the minute I do that um, the bookmakers know they they just rejig the hot prices because there's certain like there's certain lines in snooker where they're going to the overs betting to the overs pushing people to the overs when actually the unders is almost a generic bet you know you can almost make a 10 percent yield on certain lines if you wanted to just bet them bland you know you'd soon lose your account but of course um so you know the odd time i will give out like a no 50 break in the first frame which is a market um certain matchups have players who are quite um a lot of respect for each other so the first frame is always that bit more tense than the rest they're always feeling each other out if they don't make an early visit and that no 50 first frame can be priced at nine to four when actually between them two players it's an even money shot is the fact that you've played at the top level an edge for you in itself because you understand little things like that, that you just mentioned yeah that other people you know don't want to think about that at all are they so. i think 80 90 percent of it is an edge it can give me a bad bias so the, the the edge of it is that i can look at a player see how they're playing position see how relaxed they are uh see if they're ducking the certain shots the right shots and and, and that gives you a lot of tells that other people can't they can't see that um you know and um so that is a definite edge um and the one bias i get quite badly is that i can think someone's gonna be a poor player forever and then i don't really give them credit once they start playing well sometimes you know they can be grinding for years and then suddenly find you know snooker's changed so they're all older players now and um they all they're all using shrinks. They're all got breathing techniques now. When I played, if you cleared up with 60 or 70, you were like that because you've been all the pressure building up. And nowadays, they go back to the chair. They've got a breathing technique. They can get themselves pretty calm within a few moments. It used to be eight points. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, Bill Werbenick, I mean, he was just addled. I mean, he would... Bill at, the, at Norbrecht Castle, I mean, the, the stories aren't an exaggeration. Um... You know, you used to go into the breakfast, go into breakfast in the morning. He'd be sat in the lounge with his cans of Tenant Super. And you remember Tenant Super? I mean, that was uh, that was Bill Werbin it. Yeah. All right, Craig. We talked about your, your snooker in the previous part there, but golf is massive, isn't it? There's a yeah. huge interest in golf. Uh, fields are huge. Prices are to match. Is that why you concentrated on golf? Yeah, and there's so many tournaments as well. So, like, uh, this week, um, you've got um, Liv joining in this week, the controversial Liv tour, on top of them two main tours. And I've not really been that interested in betting Liv, but suddenly they're at a venue they've played out on the PJ tour. 
since 2007. They've got a load of players that have, it was a minor PGA Tour thing, and they've got some of them players on there now. So suddenly I've taken an interest this week. And, um, you know, you've, golf have got, you've got so many ways of beating the market in golf. The truth is there's a lot of golf tipsters, betters that have different ways of beating the market. Uh, you know, mine's, I like to think unique because I kind of work it backwards and it's a higher variance. But um, go on, then tell us what what you where you start. Well, so then you you kind of profile every player unless they're an older player that is just getting like a a dead start, if you like. Um, but anyone of any youth, you kind of you look into their background, kind of you make some notes. Uh, and you build up a database of what sort of courses suit them, uh, follow their junior careers, uh, follow them coming through, and then you're ready for them when they, they turn pro. And, um, you know, so by doing that, you're already ahead of the bookmakers. You don't have to bet them in the outright market, don't forget, you can bet them in a top 40 market, top 20. I mean, now this, this year, we've got most of the bookmakers doing top 40, which has enabled me to keep variance a bit tighter. You know, um, and so you've just got to profile them players, work out where they play and play well. And then that's why I work it backwards. You know, at the top of the market, yeah, I am waiting for players as well. They're, you know, players that play well at certain tracks, they're informed that you can see that they're playing well there. Their tee to green game is really solid, which is pretty much what you're looking for. Um, and then you're looking for them to find the greens that they suit them, um, you know, because the green types in golf are massive. You know, players are suited by certain greens. Some players, is like um, past Palham this week in Mayakoba, they it's slower, grainier type of green, and it needs an extra hit. And, um, you know, he's not playing it this week, but Victor Hovland has got one of the worst short games for a top player, but stick him on slow greens, he can give it an extra hit, and he's a lot more effective in chipping where there's no pressure on him than when the greens are slower. So you have to kind of recognise the golfers will change with the environment. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, everyone that's in these tournaments is a good golfer. Yeah. And they're all professional golfers. Yeah. So is there, you know, how much difference is there in the top and what somebody that might be loitering around at the 501 mark. I mean, could you ever pos could you ever confidently say no possible chance and cross a load out? Uh, when there's the older players getting a PGA Tour start that have been on the medical exemptions and stuff, you can pretty much cross many of them out. But, you know, I do keep half an eye on them. You, just, you know, they might be playing somewhere else and, you know, you get the odd one that comes back and um, and plays well. So I don't really like to give... No possible chance. I love the mix of tours when you've got all the young players coming through because golf's a great leveller. On any of that week, you've got um, anyone that's played golf knows that there's a fair amount of luck in the short term on them shots and, you know, a couple of good bounces, a couple of bad bounces over the week can make a huge difference. And, uh, yeah, you, it's easier to get you want to make sure you're always getting a higher price or you've theorised that that price you're taking on a player is better than their actual chance. And that 
different players have different proclivities. So like some players are really great in contention and can win. Like Max Homer currently at the moment, stick him in contention. He loves it. He loves the fight, makes the putts. Um, you know, and then on the other hand, though, some of the most profitable players on my golf betting have been the guys, the grinders that just eke out the checks. The Charles Howells in America, I think he'd over $40 million play, playing for over 20 years. And he, I think he'd only won three tournaments. So in that time, he's probably played 600 events. Uh, great player, but you're going to make money out of him betting him the place markets on the right weeks because he's always going to play professionally. He's never going to get too down on himself about losing a winning chance. In actual fact, the weeks you get caught out on them sort of players is when they hit the, the front too soon because then they can implode. Um, so different players have different mindsets. I mean, I don't want to say priorities because I just think it's the way sport works out. You know, I mean... A lot of people go on social media and say so-and-so is a bottler and all this lot. And I find it really frustrating being a professional sportsman. You know, they're making a good living playing a sport they love. Um, you know, what do you do for a living? Kind can, of thing. can you, you know, it's a, but golf is well known for people that have been flying and yeah. then they've gone into the rough and they've gone into the pond or whatever it is you call it. Yeah. Um, is it, have you got the talent to spot when that is just about starting to Sometimes, happen? Sometimes, yeah, you can see a player starting to crumble. Again, like, if I was watching a snooker match or watching a golf match, you can almost pick up on the body language. Um, but also, you've got certain spots on a course that are quite difficult on the back nine sometimes on a Sunday. And there'll be certain shots that are fraught with danger. And, you know, it's at that point that that golfer needs to put a perfect swing solid shot you know them great players throughout the years like Woods Faldo they would find that right shot at the right time but you can find kind of feel it with a lot of golfers that if they're going to fail so you know betting wise on the exchanges there's certain points where you want to be laying a golfer um, you know with a certain maybe couple of holes ahead that if they're going to implode that'll be it um and equally, you know, you might choose not to. You might think your guy's a, a strong closer. Um, but if they if they were a big price before the tournament, which is probably for a reason, yeah, is there more? Is it more likely that that will happen to them when they suddenly think, "Oh my God, I could win this"? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes, uh, I wrote it in my book. You've got the almost sometimes a player is so big an outsider. If they play so well that week at snooker or golf and they keep that standard up, in the end, the higher-ranked player cracks. And um, the greatest example of it in golf was Tiger Woods. You stick him in a fight with Phil Mickelson, Vijay Singh, the guys who were challenging him at the time, he beats them. When he come unstuck was when he was playing with Rich Beam, 1,000-to-one shot, Y.E. Yang, and they're playing the week of their life. They're just enjoying it by the final day. They're just enjoying hitting the ball well. And that is when the top player can suddenly crack because he suddenly then, that player keeps playing well, and that top player's got his usual expectations, but that lesser-ranked player isn't blinking. He'd expect Mickelson or Vijay Singh to play to a certain standard, but you can't. And uh, 
You see it a lot in snooker with Ronnie O'Sullivan. He's lost to an awful lot of really, you know, he lost to the amateur at the Crucible um, and what have you because of those expectations and in the end they crack. They, they, they're, they're more, a top player is more susceptible to a real rag in some ways than someone closer in the betting psychologically. So it's, um, but of course, then you've got the fact that it's a life-changing win for the other guys. So they often crack first in any case. And then that, the, the champion will go on and win. But if they don't, that is when you see the flaws in the Ronnie O'Sullivan's and you, even on Tiger Woods, that was the only time you ever really saw a flaw. Right, now, is there such a thing as a golfer, let's say, pipe and slippers, very capable, not really bothered about being the world champion, but he likes to finish in the money. Yeah. Potters around at the back, no pressure. That's yeah. a lovely day. I mean, are, are there players like that? And I suppose they're the place ones that you can spot. They're lovely. I mean, Charles Howe was one for years for me. He's now gone to live, which is a shame, but he was getting older any case. Um, you know, and you... You just love them types of players. Ryan Palmer has been one in recent years for me on the on the PGA Tour. You know, they know they just you get the feeling they're more comfortable not winning. Um, do they, they know it though? Do you think? Is yeah. it subconscious or are they yeah. just happy to potter around? Um, <coughs> I would imagine they want to win, but they've become happy in their own skin. You know, when you're earning millions a year, you don't have to beat yourself up too badly. Um, and then there is a point where if you do beat yourself up, you'll lose your game altogether. And so that keeps their game. They have a better equilibrium in some ways as a player than a player that's got big peaks and troughs. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just respect anyone. And um, But they do, they are, these are the odd ones that actually find that winning thread later on in the career. You know, they can still find it. And uh, because they've obviously got the game, they keep getting up there, um, you know, and it can be unlocked by a psychologist, um, you know, someone that breaks that mental cycle of, of helping them stay in the moment. So when you're looking at these matches, now you've been doing it for years, yeah. so you know these players inside out. Yeah. So is it now more a case of looking at each venue and then picking out the players that have got nuances for that? Yeah. And that, that's your... Yeah. So yeah. a lot of your work is in your head yeah. already. Yeah. Um, and recent form's not necessarily a good thing. No, and I, I think you need to... For me, my, my edge really is... One of my edges is preempting the sportsman's frame of mind that week. His frame of mind would be better if he's suited by where he's going, like I said, the, tra the travel. Um, and preempting, you know, he might have had an event in his life. He might have become a dad a few weeks earlier. Um, I, I, things equally you you've heard like i get the whispers in the snooker circuit if things are wrong for people in personal lives um you know and it, it, you know like you've got players with great big peaks and troughs as well those are the players to really follow in both sports because when they have a trough their rating goes right down the bookies just want to take money they're going to keep them going but if you can spot when that twig and they find something again then you've already got them. They're already in front of the bookmakers, um, and you know. Give, give us an example of what that might something that might you might see that might trigger you to think, ah, this bloke's on the turn here. Yeah? Right. So, um, a good one is um, snooker. 
um, I was watching the Championship League the other year and John Higgins had been really struggling with himself. And the Championship League is a convivial tournament on telly where the players really mix. Um, and he was trialling out a new cue and a new cue action. I could see he was hitting through the ball beautifully. And I could see he changed something. And he was loving it, playing well. And I know what it's like as a sportsman. When you think you've found something and you're playing well, you're loving it. And so I then I followed him in the... Uh, he was going to the Masters next. He was 20 to 1. And I backed him each way. He made the final. And then he made two more finals straight after. And, um, and you can see that change in a sportsman. Um, another good one at snooker this year, Sean Murphy. But he's even better because when he goes on a decline, you can almost back your, 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 your great aunt to beat him because he's just declined so badly. He's got no... Uh, he's got no B game, if you like. He plays quite an open attacking game. And um, that's his strength. That's his weakness. When he's winning, that's his strength. That's what makes him unplayable. But when he's going to lose, he can lose to everyone because he just leaves them in the balls. Right. Final part. We're getting down to the nitty gritty, the practicalities of this, you know, makers, you're making money and you're selling tips to people and making yep. them money. Um, but when you look at odds checker for golf, unless a firm has gone right out on a limb with extra places, there's very little, very little difference in the, in the prices, in the yep. prices. Are you capable of pricing up a tournament independently before they do and spotting any ricks in that way? Is that yep. you? I, I think that's, that's really my strength in golf is that, so, not all my members, but I have to settle my prices on Bet365 because they're the global bookmaker. I have a lot of overseas subs. And so this week's perfect example, Honda Classic. Um, only Bet365 go up. So my subs that have to use the exchanges, they have to wait till today. Um, and Adam Svensson opened at 55 to 1 this week. I knew it was wrong. So I got as much stake as I dare put on. I don't want to put loads on because... You're betting all your selections yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I get on first in my proxy uh, Bet365 accounts. And um, so put him up. And then, of course, other people spot him. But I'm waiting for the markets on a Monday. And like, I had him uh, a lot higher in the market. I did have him like 33 to 1 or less. And he's 33s now. You know, so people that backed him on Monday, we got 22 points more. Um and that's what I bring to the people that can bet on a Monday. Uh, and it's really with, only with Bet365 nowadays because they set the market, the others follow. I know Skybet price a little bit, but he's becoming more... He does specials um, and, uh, you know, they're a good bookmaker for golf still, but the Bet365 now, they're doing more markets are the ones. And... Um, so you'll see a fair bit of blue on a Monday, and a lot of it is is my subscribers, um, which, you know, you, uh, but there's a, f a few other guys that will be doing it, but I don't know that any are as quick off the mark as me most weeks, um, like that one. I just knew. Now, I do get it wrong the odd week, but in general, I'll always take my own judgment, and I, I will be easily right on them prices 80% of the time. Um, and that's just being conservative that um, I'll, I've already worked them out the night before. I'm already working out the form on the Sunday. Sunday's a day of work for me. 
on the golf. So kind of I'm already making my list, seeing how the players have played that week uh, that I'm interested in. And uh, I'm, I'd like to be prepared so that when that then prices come up, um, you know, I've made my own decision. Um, I mean, there was one where I got it wrong, which, so of course, um, but then I just have more on any case, personally. I mean, it was when Brendan Todd won back to back. He opened the second week. We'd already backed him the week before, and he won at 101 for us. And he was going somewhere. He's even better suited the week after. And, of course, layers always take the view that golfers can't win back-to-back. They'll love it, but they don't realise sportsmen are all confidence animals. They are all bred from when they're feeling great and at the top of themselves, they can do anything. So um, he opened at 80s. I straight away sent the thing to book to my members, get on. Went to hundreds, and then William Hill put him up one two fives, and this is probably three years ago when you could get on William Hill. So I just trebled my bet by them for members, and but, we, you know, I went with it, and he won. But people, I I spoke to I've spoken to quite a few serious golf uh, punters, and one of them sort of a bit dismissively said to me, "Well, the hardest part about winning, you know, back in on the Sunday and the Monday is getting on." Yes, it so, is. So, I mean, how? You, you know, you you offer a tipping service that's been prof- profitable for years. Yeah. I'm assuming that had you kept your knowledge to yourself, you would be still managing to get what you wanted. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how do you get around that with your subscribers? Are they warned that they have to tread carefully? Yeah. Because they're gonna, it's not going to be there forever. I talk to them all the time about doing uh, getting as many proxy 365 accounts as they can. Um, it's really the key. Uh, if you can get a Unibet account, as many of them skins as you can, because they do go a bit independent. Um, Betfred, um, I'm always trying to prepare people. And I say to people, if you're going to hammer a Bet365 account, and what I mean is by, I tend to spread it in small increments through the proxy ones I've got. But if you're going to hammer one at a time, be prepared. You need an account straight away because they are probably going to shut you very quickly. You know, if suddenly you're taking my bets and, they, and if you decide to put a century break bet on, they're going to, oh my God, you know, you're going to get short. And, so, and the firms that you're talking about with all these little markets that you're going to find an edge in are the ones that bring the hammer down quite quick, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you, I did hear on the SBC interview you did that um, even bookmakers subscribed to you, so they, yeah. were, they were getting in before you could even get your bets on. Yeah. Much. So about, I'd had such a, my place model after the first year and a half, was running close to 40%. It'd been a real blind spot of bookmakers, one I'd been exploiting personally for years. Because what they did at that time, punters just look at the top of the market. They just they just look at the top of the market, but really the value was way down below. You know, and the bookmakers had taken their eye off it because, you know, no one was betting it. So it was easy to find an eight to one shot that was actually a three to one shot back in them days. So, anyhow, of course, once I got subscribers my second year, you know, subscribers had a great time, but uh, the bookmakers got wise. And um, started my, it was about this time of year, two of my regulars said to me, I think you've got a spy. Uh, Of course, I got my bets on prior um, through different named accounts. And... I said, why? He says, well, they've gone in four minutes. So I decided to watch them. And of course, the golf place, we've gone in four minutes. 
the snooker markets were gone. Um, and it turned out I had two spies. Um, and you know you've got a spy when they've got a Island Man address and you just take them out and they don't complain. Now, there's um, a lot of variance in golf. Yeah. Big chance of a long losing run. Yeah. Even with your... Oh, I have them all the time, so yeah. What, what are your, what's your stake in advice to punters who follow you in? Right, so it was great having SBC do my things because they were able to do what I do every year, which is talk to punters where you can either level stake my stuff or you can follow my staking plan. And, uh, you know, I tell people, whatever you do, be disciplined. If you're going to change, only change in a yearly fashion or maybe six monthly, but I prefer it. And be consistent because, um, so I have, I put out to them, I'll have 0.1 on a snooker match that's just a reasonable fancy. And sometimes I'll have 0.1 each way on a golfer. Now, some of my snooker subs, or my long-term subs, they bet more on them snooker lines because they can get more on. But I say to them, if you're going to do that, you've got to be consistent. And you've got to try and get the golf out, the snooker outrights on at the same price. So if you're going to get £100 on a line at point one, you need to get £100 each way on a 33 to one shot snooker. And that is difficult. That is where you can kind of run into problems. Um, so I always talk to people about that. Um, and of course, so then I break it down what you get level staking. And actually, in the end, when you're breaking it all down, level staking is just behind my staking plan. So, you know, I, I, I'm a believer for me personally, I'd rather lose a betting account for backing a big price golf winner than I will do for, for having a big bet on a short price. That's me, and I talk to the members, that's, that's my personal view, because I'll always say to myself, well, if I've had a really cracking week on the golf, you know, we'll book ourselves holiday or we'll, um, you know, you buy something for the house or, or whatever. And, um, you know, it always feels like, oh, that was worth it. I've got a nice few bob. Yeah. You and, know. But you mentioned there about when you're going to lose an account because you're back yeah. a big price winner. All the firms that offer the real juice and the extra places and the little niche markets that you can exploit, ultimately, you're going to exhaust all your avenues yeah. You know, no matter how many extra accounts you can get to bet with, is it then time to close the book on golf betting? Yeah. Or is there still enough juice in it to make it pay with the less generous bookies, but you can get more money on with? Yeah, you you, you would have to adjust, and like I said, uh, kind of to you, there's different ways. There's there's like clever betters that bet just the top of the market. They'll bet lesser selections, so less selections, less volume than me. Uh, higher and um, but of course they're not able to create that margin so I'm kind of doing it the easy way although it's probably not what normal people do um, yeah it might I mean if bookmaking doesn't change you know it's gonna it is gradually gonna back us into a corner um, which is very frustrating um, it's something I don't know if it'll affect me because to be truthful in two or three years, we're thinking of travel in any case, and I'll probably retire. Um, and at that point, I shall say to my members that have been with me years, I'll still have a mailing list.
I won't bet every week. And when I'm out of the country, I won't be betting. And, uh, you know, you can have my, you can have my, what I'm betting when I betted it, but I won't be keeping a spreadsheet. You is, know. That, is that a roundabout way of saying that you probably don't fancy your chances if you could only bet on a Wednesday? Uh, your chances would, um, yeah, they would reduce. Um, if I still had the bookmakers you've got now, I would quite happily, and I am betting on a Wednesday, so you, you can move the market around from a Monday and you can bet on a Wednesday. You can you can bet in two different models on golf, um, but if you don't have the bookmakers, then, you know, you, you will struggle. Um, I mean, uh, if you... It has got a bit better recently, but yeah, you just don't know where it's going to end up, do you? I mean, well, you you've hinted with the previous part there that you're thinking about going travelling. Yeah. My last question is: Is making a living and tipping where you're happy to be at, or have you got other ambitions outside that sphere going forward? Yeah, I mean, I've loved it the last few years. I mean, it's um, if I'd have known I could do it, I would have done it ten, twenty years ago, and people would have. It would have made more money back then. Um, but it's exhausting some weeks um, when I've got a load of golf and snooker. And like by the time I get Thursday, I don't even look at sports for two or three days till Sunday sometimes. So I don't bet in running on the golf. Do you do anything Sunday. apart from taking your subscriptions and betting yourself? So I, I do, uh, I'm doing a master's in journalism at the moment. Um, having done a degree, I did a bachelor's degree for three years in professional writing and did my, my snooker book. Now I'm doing a master's in journalism and uh, I quite fancy doing a bit of freelance journalism, looking into some of the, um, you know, some of the good in, governing bodies of sport really. And, um, you know, I've, I've quite an insight into what can go on. And um, so, yes, I'm, I'm thinking of that, but I'm, I am, you know, I am thinking of trying to take it easier uh, in, in two or three years. Um, but you just don't know, do you? I mean, it's uh, you make your plans and they can all get torn up. But I've enjoyed it, but it is exhausting. Okay, so yeah. while, while you're still at it, what's your website? Uh, edwardstips.co.uk. And yeah. at the moment, you're still there offering your services? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, touch wood, it's uh, you know, going, ticking along nicely. And... Uh, I've actually had quite a break-even six or eight months, so I'm hoping that's, you know, would you a bit of a spare? Um, but like everything, like it's usually like the buses all come along together sometimes, and um, you just have to be patient in betting sometimes, don't you? Absolutely. Well, Craig Edwards, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. Enjoyed it.